Inside the Adventure Season 1, Episode 20 with Cameron Braun. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosier, and I'm thrilled to be speaking today with Cameron Braun, a PhD candidate studying biological oceanography at MIT. How's it going today, Cameron? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and I can't wait to hear uh, a little bit about your story. By the way, didn't you just finish up your field session tacking some sharks off the shore of Cape Cod? Yeah, we uh, we haven't actually finished yet, but we had a good start to the season over the last uh, few weeks, and we've got a couple more days coming up in uh, sort of middle of October. But yeah, the bulk of our nice warm weather is, uh, has gone now, so we we have been out doing some tagging. <laughs> awesome. That's really exciting. Well, hey, for any, everyone out there that's wondering... Um, like, what is this shark tagging thing? Why is Cameron out tagging sharks? All this awesome stuff. Let me tell you a little bit more <clears throat> about uh, about Cameron's background before we get started. So Cameron is fascinated by the marine life of our planet. In 2010, he joined a team of experts who employ cutting-edge techni- techniques to understand the ecology of the world's most important fish. Since then, he has been elected as a National Geographic Young Explorer and became a member of the Explorers Club. His expeditions have ranged from sailing the remote Pacific to understanding coral reefs to tagging sharks in Sudan. In 2012, Cameron joined King Abdul University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia to pursue a master's degree in marine science, where he used animal tagging to explore Manta Ray Ecology in the Red Sea. He's now pursuing his doctoral degree in oceanography at MIT and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, where he explores the relationship between the movements of large open ocean fish and the physical, chemical, and biological environment they inhabit. He hopes that his work will directly improve the management of these important fish populations and keep them in our ocean for future generations. That's an awesome background. I can't wait to hear all the stories associated with all the awesome stuff you've done, Cameron. But to get started, let's go back to when you first fell in love with the ocean when when you were young as a kid. Uh, did your passion for the ocean start as a kid or did it become um, more prevalent later on in life? Yeah, it, uh, it definitely started when I was younger, you know, so I, I grew up in the mountains of Idaho, so it was uh, not exactly an ocean in my front yard, but... Um, right next to a lot of coral reefs, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, just just out the back door. Um, no, so I, you know, I did spend a fair amount of time uh, on the Washington coast. Uh, my family was from sort of the Seattle area, so we spent some time um, up there as a kid, and... I spent a lot of time with my face in the water in freshwater streams and lakes. So while, you know, there's no salt in it, it's, uh, it's pretty similar in a lot of ways. And I think that's, you know, how I fell in love with sort of exploring the, you know, underwater environment and, you know, observing fish as they swim around and feed and, 
and this kind of thing. So I think that's sort of where it really started was in freshwater and in some sort of, you know, annual trips to the, to the coast. Did you start off with snorkeling or free diving and then go into scuba diving or uh, how did you first get your scuba certification to explore that? Yeah, I, I think actually it probably uh, first started um, by sort of operating a boat on the water. <laughs> uh, my dad likes to tell people that I, I captained a boat across the Strait of Juan de Fuca when I was two. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm surely I was sitting on his lap and he was, you know, doing almost everything, but I guess uh, I was steering for a while Still or something, counts. but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I count it. <laughs> um, yeah. So of course after that, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time with a, uh, with a mask and snorkel just kind of swimming around, uh, in a lot of freshwater streams. And when you're a kid, right, like the cold water doesn't really matter. So, um, even though it's like, you know, snow melt that these streams are, are full of, I, it didn't bother me then. Obviously it bothers me now, but, um, uh, so yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time with my face in the water uh, when I was pretty young. And then, yeah, when I was about, I guess, 10 or 12, um, my dad actually took me to Puget Sound in Washington and I did my sort of first scuba certification in a big, thick seven mil wetsuit. You know, you can hardly move and you the visibility is, you know, two or three feet. So it's a pretty challenging environment to uh, to learn scuba dive in. And where but, but a lot of fun. That was in Puget Sound in Washington. Wow, that's incredible. How did um how old were you when you got that first scuba certification? Yeah, I was probably 10 or 12. Um yeah, some, something like that. <laughs> I always wanted to get my scuba certification ever since I was really little um because I had uh I think it was my dentist actually was a huge scuba diver. Whenever I'd go in as a little kid, he'd have this huge saltwater fish tank, and he'd always talk to me about scuba diving. And then I'd say, "Dad, I want to go scuba diving." He's like, "You got to wait until you're 18 because your ear pressure, or whatever, isn't fully developed." And of course, he was just making that up because he didn't want me to. <laughs> I think he thought it was risky or something. But I, <laughs> I could have started off when you did. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I probably bugged my parents enough about it that they finally just caved in and said, okay, okay, we'll take you. Just shut up about it. <laughs> I should have I been more persistent. <laughs> so when did you switch from doing mainly freshwater to the ocean and focus more on um, uh, ocean, uh, the ocean marine life? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So uh, I went to college at the College of Idaho, which is a small liberal arts college just outside of Boise, Idaho. Um, and obviously, you know, there are no coral reefs in the backyard there either. So we spent a lot of time on the streams and lakes of that area studying the freshwater fish. And in 2010, so I was a junior in, in my undergrad, um, I got a summer internship from the National Science Foundation um, called the Research Experience for Undergraduates. And that actually brought me to Woods Hole Oceanographic to work with uh, Dr. Simon Thorold, who runs the fish ecology lab there. Um, and so I spent, you know, three months there um, basically analyzing a bunch of data from a lot of the megafauna that they'd been tagging, like whale sharks and manta rays. And that was sort of my first sort of real experience in, uh, in dealing with uh, understanding the ocean in a more sort of scientific and rigorous sense. So once you saw things like whale sharks and manta rays, you're like, wow, these, these don't exist in freshwater. I got it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think it's funny. So I think I, at the time, obviously I had this sort of passion for 
um, underwater and, and for fish, but I really loved making maps as well and sort of reconstructing the world or trying to understand the world in kind of a spatial context that just really made sense to me. Um, and so, yeah, when I did this summer thing, I didn't actually get to like jump in and swim with whale sharks. It was all about dealing with the data, um, that's coming back from the tags that we were using, which I imagine we'll, we'll talk about more, but, um, you know, really for me, it was about a cool opportunity and to do some cool mapping and sort of address this, this issue of where fish go that we know nothing about. Um, so I think re it's funny because I don't think actually that I got hooked by this big, beautiful, you know, charismatic megafauna like the whale shark until later. Obviously now I'm hooked by that as well. Um, but initially I just got to deal with all the numbers coming back and didn't actually get to, to swim with the animals. So, so yeah, it, it kind of came in a roundabout way. So in dealing with the numbers and the data of everything you do, give us a little bit more of an overview of, of what that consists of and the reason and the, the purpose of that and what you try to understand from, from studying that. Oh uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There's a lot to that. Um, so yeah, I think big picture, right? We, we try to put tags on a lot of different large fish species uh, around the world, we meaning me and, and a lot of other people in my field, um, because it's really shocking how little we actually understand about some of the ocean's largest fish, like whale sharks uh, or, or white sharks or, or anything else. Um, so I think it's really important that we at least try to kind of build a baseline of biological and ecological understanding of just you know, what do they eat? Where do they go? Why do they go there? I think people would be pretty surprised to hear that we don't actually have answers to most of those questions for even the species that we hear about all the time, like tunas. Um, so that's kind of the first step in what we're trying to do is build just a, a base knowledge of what these things are doing and what their life is like. Um, and, you know, we're really trying to do that on commercially important species as well, which I think is pretty critical in the age of, you know, a lot of fishing effort, uh, going on in the ocean. Absolutely. How has some of the efforts, uh, and some of the results of what you've gotten from studying the different migratory patterns of different ocean animals, how has that, um, how has that pattern changed over time? I know that, uh, fishing, um, especially commercial fishing has really picked up in, in the past, you know, 20 years and really changed the landscape of the ocean. Um, I know we didn't know much before, but have you been able to see a substantial change? A uh, change, you mean, based on like our understanding has grown and therefore we've changed the way we fish or something like right. that? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's a that's a really interesting question. I think the that translation from us understanding something about where fish go or where they spend their time to, you know, implementing some kind of management strategy where you know, you're not fishing in a place where this tuna is giving birth or something at a specific time of year. I think that translation from science into policy is a pretty difficult bridge um, to make between those two worlds that have, until the last you know decade or so, been pretty distinct. Um, I think we're doing a much better job now uh, and in the last several years to kind of bridge that gap. And I think there are a lot more people interested in exactly how you do that or you are more effective at doing that. 
Um, so yeah, that doesn't really answer your question, but I think uh, we're getting there is, is, I guess, the short answer. Um, but I'm not sure that we're quite there yet. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about the ocean? Oh, that we <laughs> that we understand it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a um, point. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I talk a fair bit about sort of exploration because this is something that you know kind of gets me out of bed in the morning. And honestly, the it's just shocking to me how we know so little about the ocean and it's such a huge part of our lives and, and of our planet. Um, you know, I sort of think it, think of it as the last frontier, um, because while we have relatively decent understanding of, you know, sort of what goes on in the surface ocean, there are thousands and thousands of meters or, you know, several miles deep of water all around the world that we just have absolutely no idea what's going on down there. Why do you think that is? I, I know we had a previous guest that also did a lot of um, scuba diving. He made a comment that we know more about the surface of the moon and now even the surface of Mars than we do about our oceans. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with that that statement, actually. Um, I think it really has to do with the fact that the ocean is just a really difficult place for humans to sort of get in and make observations about. You know, it's a it's a pretty opaque environment. Um, so we can jump in as a scuba diver, for example, and we can see into the top, I don't know, 100, 150 feet. Um, but there are thousands and thousands of more feet down there that we can't swim down to, right? Just for all kinds of, um, you know, we're limited in a lot of ways. So now we, we sort of have some technologies that we can put down deeper in the ocean that can make observations for us. But that's only a really recent uh, kind of revolution in, in science and technology that that's happening. So in the coming decades, I think you'll see that changing a lot. Um, but yeah, right now we just, we don't really have the skills or the tools to, to get down deeper in the ocean and make, make good observations. What type of new tools do we have now that help us to map the ocean? Is it um, radar or sonar based or something like that? Oh, we have all kinds of exciting stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm, I feel pretty fortunate that I'm at MIT and, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution because there are two of the, of the organizations that are really sort of pushing the forefront of, of these technologies. So, um, you know, we see all the time people are developing new autonomous vehicles, you know, like the ones you hear about in the news where they, they send out to investigate, you know, when a plane goes down in the ocean or something. So they, they actually send out a, a fleet of robots to yeah, sort of use sonar to scan those areas. But the robots are sort of making decisions on their own about where to go and, and how to how to survey something, for example. So so that's really, um, you know, those there's a lot of limitations still with the robot technologies, for example, but they're just making leaps and bounds uh, advances every year, which is really exciting. Um, and as far as the, you know, the fish world, we are using some of those same technologies, and in some cases, we're a little bit behind that um, that curve of sort of autonomous vehicle development. But but we're doing pretty well in that we're developing a lot of mostly satellite-based tag technologies, where um, you know we basically attach these tiny computers to uh, a fish to see where it goes and and how it dives when it's going there, and try to understand its behavior. So. You know, there's just a whole bunch of new tools being developed all around the world to 
better understand the ocean based on you know whatever questions it, it is that you have. So it, it's a really exciting time to be to be studying the ocean for sure. It it really is a fascinating time to be able to see how the new technology that we have in so many different fields can apply to oceanography, and especially at MIT where you're right now. I think that's the the best place you can possibly be to be able to leverage that technology. Um, but one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask was, I did a program out in California last summer called Singularity University, where the founder, Peter Diamandis, is also the founder of the XPRIZE. And one of the new XPRIZE initiatives um, is to map um, the entire floor of the ocean. Uh, have, have you heard about that? And do you know anyone that's attempting that? Do you think that will be something that will be possible in the next 10 years? Yeah, you know, I, I did sort of hear about it um, a little bit. I, I'm not super familiar with it, and I don't know anyone personally who's doing it, but almost certainly someone at, at either MIT or Woods Hole are, are attempting this, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's totally possible. The uh, The thing I, that sort of jumps to mind immediately is that we have the technologies to do that, right? That doesn't seem uh, that far-fetched, but the ocean is so big <laughs> that um, I just think it's it's hard for people to get their minds around, including me, um, just how massive the ocean floor really is. So in the next 10 years, uh, maybe. In the next 20, probably. <laughs> it's just such a big place, right? It's just such That's a big true. place. Isn't it, um, doesn't it cover 60% of the surface of the, of the Earth or even more? Yeah, it's even more than that. Yeah, I thought so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, well, the technology is, itself is incredible, but um, I'm sure you have some incredible stories from from your work with what you've done. Do you have a favorite story you can share with us? Oh man, <laughs> I have uh, yeah, I have lots of stories. Um, you know, I guess some of my f- favorite moments. Um, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time traveling around parts of the world to, you know, put tags on fish and, and try to understand some of the coral reef environments. And you, you mentioned a few of those things uh, early on in the show. Um, so yeah, a lot of my favorite memories are just from being out in the field in a beautiful, often remote place with friends or colleagues. And you're all sort of working together as a team to address, you know, some scientific question that you're, that you're there for. Um, and, you know, it's pretty cool how, um, for example, you, you know, we do these trips like to the Phoenix Islands, which is a, a very remote island chain in the sort of central Pacific that's very hard to get to. It's, you know, three days minimum by boat from any of the nearest places where you, that have an airport. Um, and it's just, you know, it takes a gargantuan effort by a lot of people to all come together on the same team to make something like that kind of a trip happen. And also, you know, to get the money to, to make it happen. Um, and so then when you go there, it's just, it's so special because so many people have put so much time into trying to get you to a place to address a list of, of science questions. Um, so to me, that that's uh, pretty motivating about what I do. Um, and then once you get to one of these places, right, it, you know, you have a certain amount of time to answer or try to meet all the objectives that you sort of cooked up when you were sitting at your computer at home. Um, so then you have to actually, you know, realize those objectives, which is, which is a whole nother set of challenges. But yeah, you know, going to a place like the Phoenix Islands, we uh, are able to observe coral reefs that are 
basically a, as pristine as any that exist in the world today. And so um, a lot of my favorite memories are from there just because the the place is so incredibly remote and largely untouched by fishing pressure or, or you know, coastal cities or any of these other sort of impacts that we have on a lot of other ocean environments today. And so, yeah, just going there and, and you know, jumping in the water and having 50 or 60 sharks just, you know, staring through your, your mask when you jump in is, is pretty exciting. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, that kind of stuff I just I get really excited about. That sounds like a beautiful place. I, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would maybe have a different uh, impression when you said I have 50 or 60 sharks staring me at the mask and maybe find that terrifying rather than exciting. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're not too mean. I, I, I like, uh, you know, swimming with reef sharks is, uh, is really a blast. And I think it can be intimidating. But, you know, if, if you get the opportunity to do that, it, I think it's just it's so cool to be able to watch these animals in, in sort of their natural environment and, uh, and see how they interact and, and move around. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Seeing the difference between a place like that and another place that might be, um, much more touched by commercial diving and by humanity. Has there been a, um, a big change in the way that the, the reefs have adapted to human interference and, and what's that change projected to look like over the, um, the course of the future? Yeah, you know, the projections definitely depend on, you know, what kind of ocean habitats you're talking about and, and sort of where they are and, and what they're impacted by. But in general, you know, the, the baseline for coral reefs, like I sort of described in the Phoenix Islands, compared to uh, a reef, you know, in Hawaii or in the Caribbean or these places where you know, maybe you have a coastal city right next to the reef or you have a lot of fishing pressure. Um, you know, the, the differences are just, I mean, stark. The, the contrast is, is really shocking. Um, you know, where on a pristine coral reef, for example, you have a lot of fish biomass and a bunch of sharks. Um, you have pretty sort of healthy, colorful corals with lots of, you know, diversity, lots of different species. Um, then you go to one of these other places that's been uh, impacted in, in some way. And, you know, often you see just lots of algae growth um, uh, on a lot of the coral because the coral just, just can't keep up with the, the growth of the algae. Um, and there aren't uh, the same fish populations there to sort of help keep that algae in check. And, you know, if you think about sort of a basic food chain or food web where, you know, you have fish uh, eating each other and being eaten that there's sort of a balance we think in that in a more natural pristine coral reef environment and when humans come in for example and they catch one of those members of this sort of food web um, kind of throws things out of balance so so yeah there's a lot of sort of uh, complexities there but I think the the most surprising thing for me is just jumping in and, and looking and you can just really see the differences even to the untrained eye. How has ocean acidification played a role in the change of the race as well? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a ton of research being done on that right now, and uh, and coral reefs, to be totally uh, honest, isn't really my my specialty. Um, but you know, a lot of people find that with uh, ocean acidification, corals can't do as well as they used to be able to in sort of building their skeleton and 
kind of maintaining um, the growth that they have normally um, been able to, to uphold. So that's uh, definitely a big factor is, you know, how the chemistry of the water changes and how that affects how corals can actually grow. It's really interesting. Has um, so you study mainly more larger fish populations and and um, that type of um, kind of oceanography rather than coral reefs, right? Yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of field work on coral reefs, but um, my specialty is more sort of yeah, open ocean predators like uh, tunas and swordfish and sharks and have how they. A, uh... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, have you seen a correlation between those types of things, the larger predators and the uh, uh, the health of local coral reefs, um, do they all kind of tie together or connect in any way? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a, um, a connection between health, healthy coral reefs and their, you know, predator populations like sharks. Um, there are also a lot of larger predators that kind of migrate through a lot of coral reefs, uh, like tiger sharks is a good example. They spend a lot of time sort of moving through coral reef environments. So, you know, I think a lot of the evidence we have is sort of anecdotal and in someone who has been, say, diving on a coral reef for a really long time, they can see the differences um, over the years. But I think it, what's really surprising is that, you know, we know so little about a lot of shark populations, even ones that people interact with uh, on a daily basis. So it's it's pretty hard to assess sort of long-term trends. But but I think in general, it's safe to say, yeah, that, that uh, the health of uh, any habitat, whether it's a coral reef or anything else, clearly affects the, the larger predators that sort of rely on that habitat. It's amazing to see how interconnected all the different habitats are and how an effect in one really affects another. Yeah, it totally, it totally trickles. Yeah, it totally yeah, does. It's fascinating to see that. Um, so if you could choose uh, one type of uh, marine animal to be your favorite, what would it be and why? Oh man, I like a lot of marine animals. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I I really have fallen in love with the Mako shark. Um, I, I was telling you earlier, I actually have a, a puppy who I named Mako. Um, I and you guys might hear him if he uh, he's sitting next to me here, but he's being quite quiet at the moment. Uh, you might hear him at some point during the show, but um, yeah, you know, the Mako shark is is just such a cool. Um, predator they're one of the fastest fish in the ocean um they can inhabit you know super cold water down to, to nearly freezing and you know as warm as 80 or 85 degrees fahrenheit so they can really handle a whole bunch of different uh environments um they're really a fast um awesome predator and they're they have a lot of cool sort of uh adaptations so they you know they're able to kind of keep their body at least the core of their body and some of their nerves, like their brain, a bit warmer than the water that they swim in. There's a, a group of sharks that's able to do that, and they're one of them, um, which I think makes them, you know, a, a really seemingly highly evolved predator, right? If you can be warmer than your prey, you're faster than them, and and so that makes you uh, more effective at what you're trying to do. So, um, yeah, I think when I first started working on makos a couple of years ago, I've just been fascinated by them. Um, and yeah, there's not really been any turning back. <laughs> <laughs> Are mako sharks the main type of shark that you um, that you spend your time studying and tagging? Uh, no, actually, um, 
I, I have done some tagging of Makos. They're not as common as I'd like them to be, actually. Yeah, they're pretty um, rare, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they're they're quite rare. Um, you can still you know fish for them and stuff in like recreational fisheries, so they're not um, you know endangered or anything. But uh, but yeah, they're they're pretty rare, um, and we don't see a ton of them around Cape Cod, which is where a lot of my research has been in the last couple of years. Um, so we've tagged a few, but we've also been tagging a lot of blue sharks. And for anyone who's spent time offshore in Cape Cod, they know how, how common the blue shark can be uh, at some, some times. So we've really been focusing our efforts on the blue sharks because they're just a great sort of model species for, for carrying our tags. And they head offshore at a pretty predictable time in the fall, which is basically right now. And they just swim thousands and thousands of miles every year. And so they, they really are perfect for us to tag and try to understand them as a model sort of open ocean predator that's that's really migratory to sort of figure out what they you know, what they do, where they go, why they go there. That's fascinating. There's I, I love learning more about sharks and I think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about sharks. Um but aren't aren't there some sharks that um that we almost really don't even know anything about just because they're such deep water sharks. Um, I, I can't remember the name of <clears throat> the name of it, but uh, I heard about this one shark that no one has ever actually seen one live until very recently. They've only seen, um, you know, the remains of a dead one. Have you heard of that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I can't think of the name of that shark off the top of my head, but that, that totally happened. Um, Are there and- a lot of like species like that, that, we just don't even know exist yet in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, you know there might be. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. How just how big the ocean really is, and um, you know, if you can imagine, if you go out, say, in the middle of the Pacific or the middle of the Atlantic, you know, it's um, several miles deep the the water there, and once you get down a few hundred feet, it's just completely dark, and a little bit deeper, and it's completely cold. You know, barely above freezing. And so, like we were talking about earlier, it's just it's so hard for us to to actually make observations about the biology that lives in that kind of an environment. So, you know, if someone said, "Oh, I discovered a new shark species by you know diving down deep in, on the Mid Atlantic Ridge in the Atlantic," like that just that would not surprise me at all because it's just such a, a crazy environment for us to try to try to learn learn about. And that's what's so interesting about it is that there's just so much we don't know. It's fascinating. And for everyone out there who might be listening to your story and is inspired to want to learn more about the oceans and marine life as well, what bit of advice would you give to get started? Uh, You know, I think so being a a marine biologist or or oceanographer and especially one who studies sharks, I, I talk to a lot of people who say, oh, what you're doing is so cool. I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was younger and now I do, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. That's not marine biology. And so I think somewhere along the way, and I, I don't really understand where, but people are getting sort of turned away from this, this path of, you know, I'm, you know, 12 years old and I just love the ocean. And, and maybe by the time you're 15, you've, you know, someone has sort of pushed you away from that or something has pushed you away from that. And so I don't really understand how that happens or why, but I think my biggest piece of advice is that if that's something that you actually love, then then go do it, right? I mean, that's, I don't know, I, I just feel really passionate about if you if you find something that just really lights your fire, then 
then why not stick with it? Um, and, you know, scientists today struggle with things like funding, for example, and that, you know, that turns people away, but, uh, we all sort of make it work somehow. Right. And I think it's a, a pretty exciting time to be someone who's at the cutting edge of technology developments and then leveraging those to understand the last frontier on earth, which is the deep ocean. So, um, yeah, if you love the ocean and and you get excited about it, then just go do it. I mean, that's that's the best thing I can I can offer. That's so true. Well, I, I think the best way to get the courage to actually take that first step and that first step and just go do it is to hear the incredible stories of people like yourself who who have lived that mindset uh, to the fullest extent and and gone and made it happen. So, thanks so much for sharing your story with us all of the different experiences and adventures you've had in marine biology. It's been fascinating to learn more about what you've done, and we can't wait to hear all the awesome things you do in the future. So thanks so much for sharing that story and that inspiration with us. And hopefully there's some people listening who will grow up to be marine biologists because of your story. Yeah, yeah, I sure hope so. Uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, and yeah, I hope, you know, if I motivated one person today, then mission accomplished, right? <laughs> exactly. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much Cameron it's been a pleasure to have you on the show we can't wait to hear all the awesome things you uh, you do in the future great thanks Marshall this podcast is brought to you by Vestigo a peer-to-peer adventure sharing platform that lets people experience the best an area has to offer by connecting with the local professionals that both have the gear and the knowledge to facilitate incredible and unique outdoor experiences people have even called it an Airbnb for outdoor guides recently we talked to Tyler a fan of Vestigo who has gone on four trips so far. Let's see here. So I guess the most memorable so far is uh, Mount Yona. It's my favorite spot. I've gone there with Vestigo, and then actually I've gone there by myself a couple times afterwards because I loved it. Most memorable because I went rappelling off the side of a mountain for the first time. Do you think you would have gone rappelling if you were not on a Vestigo trip? I do not. No. Uh, maybe someday in the future. Uh, of course, just like anything else, you'd be like, yeah, I can get around to that. Vestigo allowed it to be like, let's do it. You want to do it? Here's when, here's where, you know, let's go. What would you say to someone that is on the fence about going on a trip? Go. Just go now. It's, uh, it's, you, you just can't beat it. You can't do it yourself. It's not like they're providing someone the motivation to do something that they could do themselves, but maybe don't. I mean, and, and, and they can, but it's just, there's nothing matched going in a group. I mean, if you want to go on vacation somewhere, whether you want to do some activity, like having the group of people makes it just makes it. And, uh, so, so going to do something for the first time with 10 to 15 other people who might also be doing it for the first time that maybe I know them, maybe I don't, we can kind of share our, you know, nerves or experiences or how awesome it was afterwards. Um, and then just going with someone that knowledgeable, um, you know, it's, it just all around, I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back three times since. Vestigo, an adventure sharing platform that provides people the knowledge, confidence, and safety to repel off a cliff for the first time. To learn more about Vestigo, visit their website at vestigo.co, V-E-S-T-I-G-O dot C-O. When you sign up for your trip, use the promo code podcast and receive 10% off your first trip. Vestigo, find an adventure, book a trip, go.